One of the big pressing topics parents have to deal with is their children's nutrition and relationship with food. So today we bring on Elise Resch, who is a nutritionist uh, and private therapist in Beverly Hills. She has 40 years of experience specializing in eating disorders, intuitive eating, and health at every size. She is co-author of Intuitive Eating and the Intuitive Eating Workbook, and her work has been profiled in NPR, CNN, The Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and Huffington Post, amongst others. Her philosophy embraces the goal of reconnecting with one's internal wisdom around eating. And in today's show, we dive into what principles can parents take from this and how can they apply it to the ch- to help build their children's relationship with food. So without further ado, Elise, welcome to the show. Hello, I am here with Elise Resch. And today we're going to talk about a really interesting subject that I've been chomping at the bit to get into, and that is the topic of eating, and specifically with the lens of what intuitive eating is, what that means uh, for families, and what that means for parenting and children. So Elise, I'm really interested to, first and foremost, I want to learn about you. So talk to me about how did you... What's your background and how did you end up in this fascinating field? So interesting. There's many factors uh, that contributed to that. As a kid, as a high school student, I didn't know anything about diet culture. Of course, that term wasn't around then, but I didn't know anything about dieting. My mother never dieted. I just remember thinking people were whatever they were meant to be, which is (laughs) so interesting to come around to that now. But I started college at UCLA in California, and um, my very, very first day in the dorm, I went down to the cafeteria to um, pack a lunch, and I'm in line, and then I get to the to the food, and I start to take this great big beautiful Kaiser roll, and it's a big roll, and put lots of tuna on tuna salad on it, and the girl right behind me goes, oh my God, like that. And I was like, what, what's the matter? Is there a fly in the tuna? She said, no, that's so fattening. And I had never heard that term before. So it was just a, a moment in time that said, there's something out there that I don't really mm-hmm. know about. Okay. Flash forward a bit. Um, I got involved with a family, uh, a man who ended up being my son's father, and they were very orthorexic. Um, And if your audience doesn't know what orthorexia is, it's a pursuit of health food, essentially, trying to control life through eating only healthy food. And I fell into that just because I was part of this family and wanted to be doing what they were doing. And um, But I didn't take it to any kind of level of eating disorder. It was just that I was sometimes not choosing the potato chips and choosing something else instead, but still not really that involved in it. Okay. Then um, moving forward, I had my son uh, when I was 26 and um, prior to having him, sorry, I taught elementary school for about four years when I came right out of college. So that was my first career. Had him, had a couple of years off and then thought, I I want to do something with my life and it wasn't going to be teaching anymore. I loved it when I did it, but I had my own child and I wanted to put my child energies into him. And because this family was so focused on nutrition and eating healthfully, I had friends who said, well, why don't you become a nutritionist? And I was like, oh, ding dong, the lights went off and I I started graduate school at 30. And uh, it took me a number of years. I did it very slowly and I got a master of science degree in nutrition and had the fantasy or the image, I would say, of sitting across from someone talking about eating. But I didn't know exactly where that was going to go. I had the opportunity of training at a clinic affiliated with Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, and it was a multidisciplinary program. So I got to train under every health discipline besides nutrition. So I had a broad understanding of working with people. And there was a psychologist, a psychiatrist, and a social worker. So I got counseling skills there as well. And these kids um, in this clinic had developmental disabilities. So when I finished my traineeship, it was a full year, and I was ready. I was graduated. I had my master's degree, and I was ready to go in to um, the field, I was going to devote my career to um, helping families with kids with developmental disabilities. And in fact, I worked at that hospital for, oh, I guess less than a year after, um, after I was all credentialed. And then I went into private practice. 
with that fantasy, that image of talking to people about eating. And what ended up happening was that I was not getting referrals for kids with development or families with kids with developmental disabilities. Um, instead, I was getting referrals from many physicians who were asking me to help people lose weight for their medical problems, because we have a very weight-centric view. Mm. I don't know how it is in your country, but here it's unfortunately like weight is equated to disease, which I don't believe in at all. Um, and I just didn't feel right about it. So I really spent my time with these people, helping them have uh, more regular eating and what foods could they add to if their cholesterol was high. Do you like oatmeal or beans? That'll help, you know, your cholesterol. I never had a sense of wanting to take anything away from them. But I did. And I will say this, this is 40 years ago. Um, I was weighing people and I was giving them meal plans. I told, I said they weren't diets. Um, but there still was a direction, an external direction to how they should eat from me. And it never felt right. And one day I had a, a young woman client who uh, came back to me after the, se the first session on the second session and said, I just can't follow this. I'm binging. I didn't know what to do with her. I had no concept of, of how to treat that. So I started diving into psychology and I started to see some of the very, very early um, non-diet thinking, which was mostly from um, either lay people or psychotherapists who were talking about the power of deprivation. And that hit me very strongly. And I went, okay, I'm going to write this book. And I wanted to write it from a psychological standpoint. And I started putting chapters on my computer and titles of chapters. I think I even wrote out a whole chapter. I was going to call it Interestingly, I just realized uh, a bit ago, the Tao of eating, T-A-O, T-A-O Tao yes, is an ancient. Way, yes. Yeah, and and it's based on not trying to control things. That's what Taoism is. If you if you distill it down to one statement, it's let let life happen. And in any case, okay. So I'm working along, writing. Didn't know where I was going to go with it. Didn't know how I was going to get it published. But I'm I'm working on these uh, chapters. And my co-author, Evelyn, um, Evelyn Triboli, she is, we have the same credentials and um, we both have master's degree in nutrition and we're registered dietitian nutritionists. She lives an hour away from me and she was coming up to LA once a week to see a couple of people and found out that I had some office space. So she rented some office space from me. And um, one day she was um, walking down the hall and I noticed that she looked a bit, I don't know, unhappy about something. I said, Evelyn, what's the matter? And she said, oh, I'm so frustrated. I'm trying to write this book with a psychologist and she doesn't know how to write. And I just had this like moment, a light bulb went off. I knew I was a good writer. I was an English minor in college and I knew I was interested in psychology. And I just said, I'll write it with you. So she had some similar thoughts and we started to collaborate on intuitive eating. And that was in 1990, when we first started talking about it, probably 92, something like that. And yeah. by 1993, we had a contract and the first edition of Intuitive Eating came out in 1995, long time ago. Amazing. Getting close to 30 well, years ago. Okay. My first question is, has, has any of the principles changed or evolved or, or are you still quite close to sort of what was originally written about and discussed? Okay. And I will address that in a second. I left out one very important piece to this. I ended up having an eating disorder by the end of my, after I'd had my son, um, I was, I got caught up in the diet world and I started um, restricting dieting and binging myself, which I had never done before. And so I mentioned that because I have very strong lived experience of the power mm. and the toxicity of dieting. Okay. So back to the principles of intuitive eating. They've essentially stayed the same, but we've renamed a couple of them. We have reordered them. Uh, I think in if and when there's ever a next edition, I think they should, will be even further re reordered versus yeah. the order that they're in. And the first one, which is uh, reject the diet mentality, is always going to be first because uh, people really, um, it's important for them to learn about um, the damage that dieting does, both from a physiological, neurochemical, and, and psychological uh, basis. And if they're attached to dieting and they say, oh, I'll try this intuitive eating thing out, and if it doesn't work out, I can go on, blah, 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 blah. I don't even want to mention the diets out there. That's never going to work because they have this perception of future deprivation because that day when they go on that diet because this thing may not work. 
they're going to be restricted because diets always tell you what to eat, what not to eat, how much to eat, that type of thing. And so they can never really embrace intuitive eating because there's always that internalized, probably subconscious fear that someday I may not get enough and it'll never lead them to that point of really being able to tune into what their body needs. That's so <laughs> really interesting. So I've got, oh my goodness. Okay. So I'm going to first, yes. before we, I, I want to take us back. First of all, was there a moment where it sort of, when you realized that this was what you wanted to pursue, was there any kind of realization on, on you mentioned that you'd had an eating disorder previously? Mm-hmm. Had you, were you, were you struggling with that eating disorder at the time that you discovered and sort of uh, came upon and sort of created, I suppose, this intuitive eating uh profile or, or no thankfully not. Uh, not thankfully not I started therapy at 35 I was had been in graduate school since I was 30 learning the science of how the body and the mind work and unfortunately also in the dietetic profession learning about putting people on diets but um, by the time I started my private practice at 37 I uh, my life had changed dramatically in many ways, and I was no longer, I, I would say I was eating intuitively without knowing the term at that point. So no, it was it was healed. But having had enough years from probably 28 to 30, for a few years, I was in this, and there was no treatment for this. I remember going to my therapist at the time and saying, do you think I have an eating problem? Because somewhere in the back of my mind, I thought there's, there's something wrong here with what I'm doing. And she looked at me and she said, do you throw up? And I said, no. And she said, oh, you're fine. Without any further, and I can't blame her. I mean, it was so long ago. Um, this was in the 70s. So um, there wasn't, there was no literature about it. In fact, in graduate yeah. school, I had one class on adolescent nutrition. And one day they showed a picture of some young woman with anorexia. That was it. So there was no training on eating disorders. It just wasn't it just wasn't known so much at that point. That's really, okay. And you, yeah. you've touched on a few eating disorders. So you mentioned binge eating, orthorexia, mm-hmm. anorexia, mm-hmm. bulimia, mm-hmm. not my name, mm-hmm. but what was the other one? Uh, yeah. And I think what I'd like to understand is how do we define an eating disorder? What is your your definition of it? Right. It's a complete disconnection from your internal wisdom about eating. So it's not based on your body giving you messages of hunger, fullness, satisfaction uh, from your tongue, from your full body satisfaction. It is uh, something that is directed from um, an outside direction to basically try to be thinner for the most part, and not every single person with an eating disorder, but for the most part, which happen to be my four favorite words, because I don't like all or nothing thinking, uh, for the most part, it's... um, people worshiping thinness, worshiping a culturally thin ideal. And in order to uh, achieve that, they start to go on a diet. They start to restrict. It may start very, uh, and I won't even use the word innocently. I was about to say that. It just, because it's not innocent dieting, it's not at all. But it may not be a full-fledged eating disorder early on. And as they start to diet and they restrict, and then the deprivation and the other factors, psychological factors that come in, Um, have them fall off the diet and feel terrible about it and then start binging, that it can become a full-blown eating disorder. Now, anorexia nervosa uh, is a little different, and I'm not saying that there isn't a component of it where especially um, younger people who, well, not just younger people, people who really just want to be thinner, um, are prone to it. But there's other factors. There, There's, of course, societal factors, there are familial factors, there's genetic factors. Um, there is research to show that anorexia can have a genetic component. It can also be very connected with obsessive compulsive disorder. So there, are, uh, anorexia isn't typically only about weight loss, even though people think that that's what it's about. There's And it's, it's so much about control. Whereas I think binge eating disorder and often bulimia, which is often an outcome of binge eating, is to me an absolute outcome of, of restriction. And in fact, I'm not even happy with the um, concept of binge eating disorder as a, a diagnosis, because the majority of people who have come to work with me over these 40 years I've been in private practice, um, who say they're binge eaters, they're compulsive eaters, even emotional eaters, and not that emotion doesn't enter into eating. 
once they embrace intuitive eating and let go of all those rules and are in tune with their bodies, they're now connected. I said that an eating disorder is a disconnection. Now they're connected with their inner voice. Guess what? That mm-hmm. out of control feeling just, it stops for the majority of people. I have a woman I'm working with in her sixties. Um, we've been working together maybe six months and she has been on diets all of her life. And felt so out of control, had no sense that she would ever be able to eat what her body needed. From the moment we started talking, in fact, I have another client who's more in her 20s, same thing. From the moment we started talking, the binging went away. From the moment that they got the message that it was okay to eat whatever they really wanted to eat and to tune into how their bodies feel when they make their food choices and how their satisfaction, satisfaction is a huge piece when you're asking about the principles, that's like the driving force of intuitive eating is is, is achieving satisfaction. It's like, it just goes away. It doesn't mean for everyone. And there are some people who it doesn't, but the majority of people. So I differ from this binge eating disorder diagnosis. I don't like it. Okay. Very interesting. And so could we then double click for a moment on the deprivation element? Yes. Could you explain okay. to me what it, give me the full picture of what does deprivation look like, feel like, uh, what, how do we observe it? Um, well, deprivation is the sense that we can't have something enough of or any of something that we really want. So, Deprivation can be deprivation from nurturance in early childhood, where an infant even senses that they're not, they can't speak it, but that they're just not getting that, uh, the nurturance from their caregivers. Uh, And that can be a very emotional deprivation. It can be, it can be uh, financial deprivation growing up in a home where there isn't enough money to even pay the rent or get enough food or, or even if it's perceived that way, even if there is enough money, but like parents worried about it all the time and talking about not being able to have these material things. So there's a sense of not getting what you want. And in terms of food, deprivation can come uh, in a number of ways. Interestingly, at this moment in time, we're in the um, Passover Seder and well, that's the celebration, but during the Passover mode where many Jewish people choose to not eat leavened bread. So only eating matzah, which is, it's a flat cracker type of bread. Well, for some people, the feeling that they're not going to get to eat the foods that they really like in that week can trigger some feelings of deprivation. I'm not getting what I want. Mm. And by the way, in my religion, anyone with any medical or or mental health disorder or anything is uh, relieved from having to do any fasting or having specific uh, food deprivations because mental health is the most important piece of that. Anyway, I've gone off track. Um, So um, we are driven by our unmet needs. Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, made that statement, meaning what we don't have is what we dwell on, what we think about, what we want. And it's so powerful when there's something that you want badly and you can't get your hands on it. You can't, you're not, or you think you're not allowed to have it. Those feelings, it's, it's a painful feeling that you can't have what you want. And it can be not just with food in many, many, many other ways. So um, anything can that's you, Sorry, can you say that again? Yes. What, uh, just could you say that again, that, that phrase? We dwell... We dwell on our unmet, yeah, we, sorry, we're driven by our unmet yes, needs. Yes, we are driven by our unmet needs, meaning... Okay. So Abraham Maslow has this hierarchy of needs. Um, yes. It looks like a pyramid. And at the very base of it is um, just basic needs of food and shelter. Yeah. And so if you're, um, if we were talking to a homeless person, it's so sad, and you talk to them about what they needed, all they would think about is the food and the shelter, where they're going to get something to eat and where they're going to get something over their heads. And they're not thinking about relationships. They're not thinking about Mm. higher aspirations of careers. We go after what we don't have. And so, again, we're driven by our unmet needs. And so that's really what deprivation is. And if something is forbidden, even if it's available, but it's forbidden, we can't have it. So that's all we can think about. We want it, we want it, we want it. And in diet culture, 
so many things are forbidden, so many types of foods or amounts of foods. Um, so that's one, that's one of the major psychological underpinnings of intuitive eating is to um, heal that deprivation. There's another one too, and I don't know if you want me to talk about it now or please do, please go, go okay. for it. I'm, I'm taking notes. This is my baby. Uh, it's something that I have been um, studying and, and um, impressed with is the power of autonomy. Autonomy meaning having asserting your uh, in your life the way you want to do things, and this starts out this this drive toward auto autonomy starts out in a baby around eighteen months, sometimes a little bit younger, up until about three years old. Um, this is um, Eric Erickson, another psychologist who created a model called the Eight Stages of man, I would change it to human, but this was a long time ago yeah. that it was. Um, Eric Erickson believed that uh, human beings go through these eight stages of development from childhood until adulthood uh, for the purpose of developing an identity, their own their personality, their own ego. And the first one actually is uh, from birth until 18 months. And that one has to do with what it's uh, trust versus mistrust is the basic concept there. And I believe that from that first moment after birth, that's when the child develops a sense of trust in the world through feeding. Uh, and um, if a child is getting consistent care and it's emotionally positive care and they're nurtured, they start to trust that there will be food in the world because, or their needs will be met, food as a metaphor for the new, their needs being met. And they also start to trust their inner signal of hunger be, and fullness because if there's a very attuned caregiver who feeds that child as soon as the child makes noise to get fed, usually a cry, and also um, honors that boundary that that child sets, sets up, even if they're tiny babies, of turning their head around because they're full, that child learns that they can trust themselves. They can trust their inner, their inner wisdom about hunger and fullness. And so that's where it begins. So that's from um, birth until about 18 months. So around 18 months, and again, it can be before that too, babies are now usually walking. They start to get a sense that they're not attached to their mommy by the umbilical cord. Before that, when they're very tiny, they're so dependent on the caregiver, and often it's the mother that gave birth to them, um, that there's no sense of separateness. They're, they're, mer they're merged with their, with their parent or caregiver. And, um, but at 18 months, they're walking around, they can walk out of the room, walk back in, and their, their caregiver is still there. They realize that they're a separate being from, mm -hmm. from others. And that's the point at which they, um, this is the second stage, which is called autonomy versus uh, doubt and shame. So if a very small child is allowed to have some freedom to be independent, obviously, you're not going to let them run into the street or put their fingers in the fire, mm -hmm. allowed to walk around where they want to have in a home where, you know, they, it's safe to be in any place in the home. If they're allowed to put the clothes on they want and not have to wear what, what they're told they should wear. If they're allowed to eat the foods that they're really enjoying and not told, no, you shouldn't have that. And yes, you should have this. They're developing this sense of autonomy. And I believe, I, I do a lot of inner child work, and I believe very strongly that each of us holds within us that toddler, and then of course reemerges as a teenager, where there's this huge need to assert autonomy. And I, um, I'm pretty far in age, I'm 78, and I still have an extremely uh, active toddler teen inside of me. Somebody comes and tells me like, oh, at least you should retire. No, you know, leave me alone. Or you should yeah. hire somebody to do that part of your work. No, leave me alone. And I'm very aware that that is my inner child speaking up. So back to intuitive eating to pull this together is intuitive eating is an autonomous process because one is tuning into their own signals, to their own voice, to their own feelings and their own joy in eating versus having to follow something that some external force created. And ultimately, this is, to me, this is the second big reason, psychological reason why, why diets don't work, is that eventually 
this person who has developed one hopes of a healthy ego and healthy personality, at some point it's like, no, I don't want that anymore. I can't do that anymore. And it's because it isn't aligned with their own autonomous needs and desires and tastes and all of that. Unfortunately, people are led to believe there's something wrong with them when they fall off the diet because mm. um, they're not strong enough. They don't have willpower. Your audience can't see this, but I'm double yeah. uh, quoting um, air quotes, uh, the concept of willpower, which I don't believe in at all. Uh, so I help my clients when they come to me and so often they'll say, oh, I'm such a failure at dieting. And I'll say, no, you're not. You're a success at ego development you were not going to continue to be told what to do. So those are the two psychological um, aspects of intuitive eating, in my opinion. Interesting. All right. So you touched on, I'm, I'm very interested now. Let's, let's take this, this back uh, before we do a full circle, because I've got a lot of questions on the specifics yes. of uh-huh. male versus female and, and sort of the, the orthorexia. I'm also very interested because that seems to be an increasingly prevalent trait. Yes. Yes. But let's let's go back to the sort of the childhood um, piece to piece of this. Okay. How do you think? Maybe maybe we'll start on the earlier ages. So when a child's mm-hmm. born and their first kind of experience with food is usually on the breast or on a bottle mm-hmm. through mm-hmm. Uh, and th- one of those two. What do you think um, a parent can do in those early days? Even like, do you, do you think that even from the moment the child is born? That it's, do you take the stance of uh, eating on demand or, or is there a specific way of interacting with the child that, that you think most supports that kind of initial, yes, I trust that food is always coming? Well, there's two, two aspects to this. Absolutely, it's feeding on demand. Feeding on a schedule is so opposite of honoring that child's wisdom. I mean, the majority of people are born with this internal wisdom. Obviously, there can be some developmental disabilities or some factors that um, would keep someone to be in touch, but that's a very tiny part of the population. The majority of people born into this world as babies know when they're hungry and they cry and they need to be fed. They need to be fed for two reasons, because their bodies are hungry and giving them that message, and they need to be fed so that they feel nurtured and cared for, which is what I mentioned earlier. So when a baby uh, cries, we feed the baby. If the baby right away turns their little head and isn't interested in the food, then there's a signal that, oh no, they're not really hungry. They were just needing to be held or they were needing to be nurtured in a different way. So absolutely, number one, we need to um, honor that wisdom in that child and feed that child whenever that child is hungry. And so the second piece of it, again, is for the purpose of developing the sense of trust in the world and trust in their own internal signals. Yeah. And and where do you think that this that there's a place in all and that's for this idea that so one one of the kind of things I've been thinking about is when a child when a child cries and and someone immediately goes to feed them. Mm-hmm. Does that not create some kind of almost comfort eating mentality? Push back, tell me I'm wrong. I'm Do, okay. do you think there's any well, link there or the how do you view that? Well, here's the thing. If that child is crying and they have emotional needs to be picked up and they're not hungry, they won't feed. They won't eat. That's the thing. They're not necessarily, maybe they'll go on the breast or the bottle for a moment, but they're not hungry. So they turn their little heads. So I don't believe at all that we are um, creating a sense of emotional dependency on food at that point. I think there could be if they're denied the food and and then feel that sense of deprivation with obviously at a psychic level because they're not talking, thinking about it. Um, and maybe um, learn that, I don't know, they have to just keep crying and crying and crying and, and then they get fed. I, I don't, obviously we can't talk to these babies about it, but yeah. to me it is, I am not the least bit um, worried that we're going to have a problem with a uh, like a dependency on food outside of hunger for small, small children. Now, a little bit later, when children are only given food to deal with their feelings, they're all worried about something and a parent goes, oh, here, have this cookie to try to get them away from their feelings, then something else can develop. Mm. So we need to be able to bring up children with the 
uh, sense that they can talk about how they feel, that they don't have to monitor their feelings, that they can, that they're supported in their thoughts, that, that there's someone who will sit with them with their feelings and learn to cope with feelings. Um, and not only because they're given food when they have a feeling. Mm. And on that point, I know there's a lot of uh, this, this idea of being rewarded by food. Mm-hmm. Where does that fit mm-hmm. in? So, you know, oh, well done. You won a race. You did well in a test or whatever it might be. Let's go and treat ourselves with X. And it's usually sweets or some, something unhealthy, typically. What, how do you view that relationship? Well, there's no power in that if someone has been allowed to have autonomy in their eating from birth, from birth on, because there's no foods that are good foods, no foods that are bad foods, no foods that are forbidden. So that treat that you talk about, we'll go get Mm. ice cream or we'll go, they can have it whenever they want. So yeah, maybe it's a nice time to be with the parent uh, because something has happened. They got a, I don't know, they got some award at school and I'm not suggesting that that's what people should necessarily do. But if that happens and they already have the opportunity to have whatever it is that they really want to eat on a daily basis, they'll have two bites of it. It's more that they're spending the time with the parent who's congratulating them on their award or whatever it is. So I think this reward thing, you learn it by going to the pediatrician and they give you a lollipop afterwards because you've had a, you've gotten through that terrible experience. I don't think that's a good idea at all. Um, Yeah. It doesn't usually happen at the dentist, but at the, uh, at the pediatrician's office. Definitely. So um, I, I think the power of reward is driven by deprivation, driven by not feeling fully free to eat what you want to eat every day. And so it's okay. only giving yourself, this is now we're talking more about adults or teens or whatever, giving yourself the permission to have it because you finished studying for that test or you, you know, whatever, whatever thing was uh, accomplished. No, for someone who is fully intuitively eating, they can have the food anytime they want. They don't have to wait to have it as a reward. Okay. And I'm sure a lot of people are going to be thinking at this point, oh my goodness, if I let my child eat whatever they'd wanted, they would just eat ice creams all day. How, Mm -hmm. how do you avoid that? Is that something that should be avoided? Like, is that just, do you think that's an inevitable outcome? Do you think that's not an inevitable outcome? Um, how does it play out? If I say okay. to a child, a two-year-old, go go and eat whatever you'd like. So if you have a two-year-old that has been restricted from, maybe they get one cookie a week or they get one ice cream a week, and then you say, eat whatever you want. And I don't care what age it is, whether it's two or 22 or whatever, um, there's going to be an excitement and a thrill and a drive to get as much of it as they can because they've been deprived in the past. However, if you brought a child up as an intuitive eater from day one, meaning, well, day one, it's milk, and then around six months old, when they start getting interested in what is being offered around the family, if, if a family has the privilege to be able to sit together and at least eat one meal together a day, be great if they can meet all their all their meals together, but that's not necessarily going to happen. But at least a meal a day, or a few meals a week, where the family, all the members, the parents, and if they're older siblings, they're sitting at a table. All the different kinds of foods are presented, including the cookies or whatever. And they see that, oh, some people eat some vegetables and some people eat some of this or that. They don't put a different value on different foods. And so um, they don't end up feeling this need to just fill themselves with what is special because it's no longer special. And and let me say this, um, Gigi, it's... um, I have had the privilege of all these years of helping people heal from their disordered eating, their eating disorders, um, and raise their own children. And and some of these kids are already adults by now. They are all intuitive eaters. When the parents have come to me to heal their problems, and they don't put those problems on these children, mm. and I and they write to me all the time, or I'm in touch with people all the time. These kids don't end up with eating disorders. It's it's really beautiful because they haven't brought up been brought up to believe this is good food or bad food, or you only get this if you've been good or, or anything like that. So I think you have to, your question has to be looked at a little more deeply. Uh, Has this person, a two-year-old or whatever, 
been deprived of these things or thought that they can only have it once they finish their the chicken and their vegetables and their rice or whatever it is, then you can have whatever. It elevates the value in their minds of, and it becomes forbidden unless they do this task of eating these other foods, which are no longer the good foods for them in yeah. their mind because they just have to get through them to get to the other food. When that's When that doesn't happen, we don't have any does- kind of sense of out of control. Go ahead. Does, does this kind of, when, when, you, um, when you encourage sort of a child, let's say, to be more intuitive in how they eat, does that come with a, an education piece as well where, you know, it's about, hey, try this piece of broccoli and see no. how it feels, how no, does your body no, feel? No, 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 oh, no. No, no okay. trying. Oh, no, 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 no. Because then oh, these little kids already are in this out and need to be autonomous. I mean, once they're eating solid foods, they're already in that toddler stage. The more you push something on someone, the more they're going to react and rebel against it. So it's more of a family eating. And even if the family's one parent, that's fine. The seeing the the parental figures or and siblings perhaps eating this the broccoli and you don't say anything, at some point they're going to want to try the broccoli because it looks like a little tree to them. But if you say just try it, you have to think of the psychology of that and how they're going to react to it. So the parent's job, let me be clearer about this. The parent's job is to provide reliable meals, regular meals and snacks throughout the day, not expect kids to just go to the refrigerator and grab anything, but to to make sure that there is food for them. The job is as best as they can to be role models by eating a variety of foods in front of the children. Uh, not forbidding sweets. I often tell people, just put on the table the cookies along with the rest of the food. And yeah, they for a while, they might go to the cookies first. And then after a bit, they're just, they have the same value to them. Uh, a term I've come up with is emotional equivalency in terms of eating. I, I do have a degree in nutrition and I know certain foods have maybe extra nutrients in them than others, but it's how we feel about ourselves based on what we eat. So we don't feel good about ourselves because we ate the broccoli and bad about ourselves because we ate the ice cream. It's we just uh, feel emotionally equivalent about it. So um, going back to the parents role, it's to provide the food. It's to be good role models. And it's not to pressure a child about the amount of food they need to eat or having to eat, trying certain things before they're allowed this or that, because that's going to lead to disordered eating, in my opinion. Interesting. And maybe not so much on the, the trying, but do, is, do you kind of encourage parents to encourage their kids to be conscious and mindful when they eat and to sort of almost, let's say that they were there was something that they were, there were the different foods bringing to a child's awareness, like how does that broccoli make you feel or how does that ice cream make you feel? Well, I wouldn't say that to a (laughs) two-year-old. I wouldn't say that. And I, uh, what I was going to say when you're talking about being mindful is I do believe that children need to eat at the table. So whether it's a high chair when they're little babies or they have their little tiny, gosh, I just remember when my son had a little table and chair, that's either they're eating there or they're eating at a bigger table uh, with a booster or whatever. Uh, and when they're done, it's like, okay, honey, you're done. Go play. No pressure to finish it or anything like that. And um, so that encourages mindfulness when they're older. No phones at the table, no uh, distractions at the table other than conversation, which isn't really a distraction, but it's learning how to live in the world and be able to eat and also appreciate your food. So um Later, in a little bit when they're older, if they come to you and say, I, I, I have stomach aches all the time and you want to educate them on maybe um, having a little more variety in their eating, maybe they're constipated, they're not getting any f- foods with any fiber, you might be, a, you can teach a child a tiny bit of nutrition later on when it's coming from them. Uh, versus a whole lecture and discussion about these are the healthy foods and these are the, I call them play foods. They call them usually junk food, which I don't like the term. And so you should eat plenty of these and not so much of that. No, nothing like that. It's more about children can be curious. They might even ask, well, why do we eat that? Or why do we eat this? And certainly there's no problem with saying, well, this milk that you're drinking, it actually helps your bones be strong. 
or this meat that you're eating, it, it makes your muscles strong. That's okay. I mean, I'm not saying you have to hide nutrition from them, but you don't want to push it on them in any way. Mm. And maybe the uh, last, the last lingering question I have on, on the, the child piece is this whole um, idea of sugar being addictive. Oh, a, God. do you believe in that? <laughs> Absolutely <And> B, not. <laughs> yes. Why not? Okay. First of all, something that blows my clients' minds away, and it's stunning to me that people don't know this. The only, I'm going to say this in a scientific way to start with, and then I'm going to translate it. The only cool. energy substrate that crosses the blood-brain barrier is glucose. Now, what does that mean? The only source of energy for the brain to work that can get from your bloodstream, because after you digest food, it goes into the bloodstream, and then it has to cross into the brain, is glucose. Glucose is your small, smallest form of sugar. So it's a one molecule substance. The brain only operates on sugar. In certain circumstances, in starvation circumstances, it can use up the glycogen stores in our body, which is our stored form of carbohydrate. But that only works for like four or five hours. After that, you've got nothing. And then the body has the ability, or the brain has the ability to send out the message to start breaking down muscle tissue, which is mm. made of amino acids from the protein, but they can be converted into glucose. My favorite word is gluconeogenesis, make new sugar. And so we are so driven by the need to have carbohydrates so that we can provide the sugar for the brain. How could something like that be addictive if it's actually something we need to survive? So the other, the other piece of it, when I think about addiction, from a drug, let's say, if somebody's been addicted to, I don't know, cocaine, you stop that cocaine and they go into withdrawal or they've been alcoholic mm. and they go into all the physiological um, withdrawals that come from that. If somebody is eating a large amount of, sh of high sugar foods and the next day you give them a lot of carbs, like complex carbs, like potatoes and bread and rice, they're not going to have any kind of physiological withdrawal because those complex carbohydrates are providing the sugar for the brain. Of course, the question okay, is... Very interesting. It's so, it's so interesting. I was going to say, the question is, why is that person driven toward so much sugar? Probably because they're forbidden from it. And that goes back to the deprivation thing and being driven by our unmet needs. If they're living in a home where it's, it's like, oh no, you can't, this is bad for you. This is even using the term addictive, you shouldn't have it. Every chance they get, if they're at a friend's house, they're going. They're the kids that come to the friend's house and go into the snack drawer and can't stop eating. And I've had parents tell me this all the time, where their kid, it's like, well, I don't care because they can have it anytime they want. So we are driven to get enough sugar for our brain. It cannot be addictive. And any of the, if there's any studies that, that lean toward it being addictive, they have not actually asked the question of, have you deprived yourself of that food prior to the study? Because if you've been in deprivation and you're suddenly given a large amount of, let's say a high sugar food, you're going to eat as much of it as you can because this is your opportunity. But if you've never been deprived of it, you're just going to have the amount that satisfies you. Oh, we could talk for hours about this. Shishi. Very interesting. I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. There are just more questions emerge and emerge. Yes. I think maybe where I'd like to go next is my assumption, I might be wrong, but the, the most kind of common eating disorder today, I have an assumption, mm -hmm. I would love to hear what, you're, what, what you know to be true, even if it's just anecdotally what you see with your clients, but what is the most kind of common, not necessarily in kids, or maybe actually if there is a specific one to zero to six years old, I'm specifically interested in that age group or in teenagers, maybe as a separate question, but <laughs> in each of, so three questions, not yeah, one. Okay. One, what is the most common in younger kids, sort of teenagers, and then in the adult population that you see? Well, I get two kinds of things with younger kids. Either they won't eat, and they've been pushed and pushed and pushed. And so that need for autonomy comes up and they're no, no, no. And I help parents just back off, put the food there, don't say a word. And after several weeks, the children, is, the children are eating. So that, that's one aspect. The other aspect may be children that are eating well beyond fullness. And pretty much when I have seen this, there are parents who are very attached to their own weight issues, their own body image issues and are giving directions about good food, bad food. 
And so these children are often uh, going after so much of the food that they they think they shouldn't have when they get their hands on it. So that would be going eating beyond fullness. So those would be the two pieces, not eating much and eating beyond fullness. But so much of it has to do with the connection with the parents and how the parents are mm. uh, dealing with the relationship with food. For teenagers, um, I, I think when the teens come from a home where there's been all kinds of different foods, they don't have, and they're now they have a car and they've got friends and they go out to eat, they're going to eat all the kid food, that teenage food, that the fast food and things like that that are easy to get because everybody's doing it and they're going to do it, but they're not like feeling the need to have to get it now because they won't have it at other times because they haven't given that been given that thought that you shouldn't have this food. Um, kids who have grown up in homes where there's been a lot of restriction and there's so much of this it just troubles me so much, so much of this orthorexic thinking in a lot of homes where this is healthy food, this is not healthy food. They get to college and they can't stop. So they're finally freed from the prison of being told what to eat when they're when they're living at home. And then they and they often do drink a lot, drink a lot. Also, it's like this need to just be their own person. And so, but the kids that go to college who have always had a healthy relationship with food, mentally healthy relationship with food, because their wisdom has been honored. Yeah, they don't get to college and just get out of control. It doesn't happen. Very interesting. So, so is, is orthorexia the, probably the most problematic one that you see? So orthorexia is not actually in the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual of Eating Disorder of um, Mental Health Issues. So it's not I'm in sorry, there just, officially. Uh-huh. Sorry, I just realized. Could, could you please explain to us what orthorexia is? Yes, orthorexia is a drive to eat healthy food, quote unquote, and the goal is to control life in some way. And people get very, very taken by only eating the most, the foods that don't have chemicals or the foods that are organic or the foods that have the most nutrition in them, believing that that's going to typically give them a longer life. They buy into this whole wellness thing. There's a new book coming out at the end of the month called The Wellness Trap by Christy Harrison, who wrote um, Anti-Diet, which she just breaks that down beautifully. And that The book. Wellness the book Trap. I, the Wellness Trap. Yeah, I wrote, a, uh, I wrote, this is, this is my battered up version of it because I got to write a, a blurb on it. So I, and today in the mail, I actually got the, the hardcover. It's wonderful where she goes into all of this myth out there about um, how we can control life by our food. There was an article that I saved for a long time by a woman who ended up dying of lung cancer who had never smoked a day in her life. And she wrote this article saying, I spent my life only eating broccoli and healthy food, trying to keep myself healthy. I wish I'd eaten the hot dog because she got some form of lung cancer she never smoked. And it's just one of those sad things. So we cannot control our health. We can, we can feel better when we listen to our bodies and the way we eat. And like I was mentioning earlier, if it's a, a child that isn't going to the bathroom and or an adult, and you realize, oh, maybe I better get some vegetables in or some whole grain grains, um, so that I have some fiber in me. That's that's mm-hmm. a different story. That's not orthorexia. And by the way, we only have about five more minutes, Gigi. I know. I'm sorry. So yeah, yeah. (laughs) Two, two more, two more questions. Yeah. One is if you if you teach people how to intuitively eat, do you find they typically skew towards what we would consider healthier foods? And I mean, I know this is a pejorative term, so I'm sort of imposing what my view is of, and I I think everyone would be have their own view of what is healthy Uh or not. But do you typically find they end up eating primarily fast foods, high sugar foods, or do you typically find they they eat foods that uh, keep their sugar level more stable? Like, is there a sort of So if someone has dieted for years and has been deprived either by their parents or they have deprived themselves through diets, they go through a period of whoop-de-doo, I can eat everything I want, and they tend toward the foods that they were previously forbidden. And that goes on for a while until they get to this point that's called habituation, which is uh, the greater the stimulus, the less the response. So the more you have of something with full freedom, you get to that point of like, eh, Okay, I've had enough. It's, it's it, it takes that uh, more neutral place in one's life rather than the forbidden place. Over time, most people get a pretty good balance once they go through that first period of getting in everything that they've never 
had before. And as I said in the beginning of this podcast, if they're thinking about some future diet, they will never reach habituation because mm. they've got that perception of future deprivation. So, um, and it also has to do with your food availability. I mean, we have people who the only kind of food that they can get is fast food because they're in a poverty mm. level and they're the only way they're feeding their families is with very low cost fast food. We can never judge people for that. Thank goodness, yeah. thank goodness they're getting energy into their families with the food. Yeah, completely. Okay. And then conscious of time, maybe uh, last question is, do you see a difference between the way typically men and women approach food? And is that is there a very kind of societal factors or I'm interested in that dynamic. So I think um, typically the male gender has been socialized to not talk about problems as much, to not talk about feelings as much. And I have had many men who uh, or boys with eating problems who have been willing to talk about it. I think the pressure on women is so great in our culture that there's not as much pressure on men. On men, it's often make more money. Doesn't matter how you look. On women, it's more be be thinner. And I could, if we had another hour, I can talk about the the racial origins of fat phobia. I can talk mm. about the the patriarchy and how that has determined that. But we can't forget all genders. And I have worked with people who are transgender who have had eating. Uh, they're trying to change their bodies before they actually go into any transition, being unhappy with their bodies that have they were they were assigned a certain gender at birth and they are feeling that, uh, or they know that they're not that gender and they don't like the secondary sexual characteristics that they have. Um, and they may try to, I've had clients who have tried to, uh, diet away their, mm. their, uh, the parts of themselves they don't like. So, uh, but I, I do think if the question is who has the most pressure, the gender that has the most pressure is women, it's female. Interesting. Okay. And then last one, what is the one piece of advice you would leave parents with? If there was one thing that they could take away from this, one thing they can start implementing or just thought that they can keep front of mind, what would it be? Okay. It is that your child is born with everything that they need to know how to eat. Hunger, fullness, what tastes good, what doesn't taste good. Be the parent who provides a wide variety of foods. Be the parent who sits there at the table and eats with the child and eats a variety of foods. And look at your own connect relationship with food and your body. Never, ever make a comment about your body in front of a child, a derogatory comment in front of a child. Never like, oh, I got to lose this pregnancy weight or, oh my God, I can't believe I'm getting older and I've got a belly now or never because that conversation is going to impact the child more than anything else. So I think mm. the primary thing is fix your own relationship with food and body and read intuitive eating to do that. <laughs> That's fascinating. Okay. All right. Thank you. I, Jeepers, I really could keep going for, for ages, but I know we've got a hard stop. Um, Elise, thank you so much. That was really, really interesting. You're welcome. If you ever want to do this again, I'm happy to continue to talk about thank it. Thank you. Something.